Fans of the Dynasty Invest podcast, if you feel like there was one particular episode in the back catalogue in the anthology of Dynasty Invest podcast episodes that really, really, really was massively valuable to you, feel free to share that with a fellow dental colleague who's in a similar position so their understanding of finance can be elevated and they can hit the next level of financial success in their life. Also, as well as that, if you could take two seconds to rate and review this podcast, it would mean the world to me. What that would mean is that it drives this podcast further in terms of reach so that more dentists across the world can be able to benefit from the knowledge contained therein. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. And this is a podcast I've been meaning to do for a while on the journey of the individual, the associate, most commonly, the journey of the individual, the associate, who wants to buy their own practice, what do they need to watch out for, what should they consider, and what are the inevitable pitfalls, which we need to overcome in order to be successful, and who better to answer that question than practice broker Martin Bradshaw. Martin, how are you? I'm very good. Yourself? I'm wonderful. Martin, whereabouts in the world are you speaking to us from? I'm currently in New York. Um, so our head office is in New York, um, although we're nationwide, but uh, the majority of my time spent uh, spent here. Sunny York, beautiful. Well, York is pretty picturesque and scenic, actually, right? It's a, it's a beautiful town. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to, get, nice to get around, I must admit, but uh, always nice to come. There's worse places to be based. Absolutely lovely. Okay, good stuff. Well, let's get straight down to business. So the point of this podcast is the journey of the dentist who is wishing to undertake practice ownership. And the reason that we chose the journey as our model or as the, 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 the theme of this podcast is because it's very nice, it's very poetic, and it kind of conjures up this imagery of the romanticized entrepreneur and the struggles and strifes and all the things that they go through in order to achieve success. Plus, it's chronological, which makes sense to us. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of the associate who's maybe just come out of university for a few years and has now got this cash pot building up. And they begin to think to themselves, hmm, I've got this cash. It's gathering dust to a degree in the bank account, which is a very dental problem to have, by the way because we're very fortunate. Most other professions, they don't even have that dilemma, so to speak. But as dentists, through doing what we do and being having some level of aptitude at it, we tend to accumulate some cash in our bank accounts, which is great. And that cash ideally would have a home in order that it might work for us. And one of the ways we can do this, one of the most common ways, is that we buy our own dental practice. So let's put ourselves in those shoes of that individual, as I say. They've got that cash building up they're beginning to put the feelers out for a dental practice what do those people need to know martin i think it's it's funny because i think a lot of people actually fall accidentally into buying practices um and whether it be seen as the thing to do at the time that their friends are are all doing the same and I think it's really important to to view it like any financial investment that you need to be ready for it. You need to to have a plan, and you just need to make sure that you're buying the right thing for you. Um, so, so typically our our purchases would be maybe twenty eight plus. So obviously a fair few years of experience, which is required. Um, in reality, and, and that's that's for the bank's purpose as well. So typically, banks want want to lend to somebody um, just out of VT. 
So they're, they're going to want to see somebody who clinically is is experienced as as well as some level of business experience. And as you say, to some degree, also having the financial backup. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got um, twenty, fifty thousand pounds in cash. He's it, just showing some level of stability. So what what really happens is practice. Um, sorry, an associate considers. I, I want to buy a practice now. So so what what do they look for? Well, first of all, they need to really look at the type of practice that they want to purchase. I. Do they want to buy a principal-led or an associate-led practice? And, and this is this is key, really, for, for what we talk to with, with buyers and determining exactly what their future plans are. And it, it, it may be a hard question when you're talking to somebody who's 28, 30, who is thinking, I want to purchase a practice, then thinking about their life for the next 20, 30, 40 years. Because in reality, most people will buy a practice once or or certainly the people who don't purchase multiple practices will buy a practice and generally keep it until retirement. So it's a long investment. Um, (laughs) There's no doubt about it. So we like to... We like to have a discussion about exactly what somebody wants out of a practice. Do they want a practice that they can go and work in? Um, and do they then want support of other dentists, i.e. two, three associates? Or, or do they actually want something that's a bit more flexibility that might be an associate-led practice, i.e. It, it might have four associates and that that person purchasing can take over from one of those associates but typically, it doesn't need a principle in it. Um, it it's quite a difficult um, concept, I would say, to, to get your head around. And the way in which I try to explain it is a £200,000 turnover practice has one dentist. Um, they have fixed overheads of 100000 and they they have their then profit of the, the remaining one hundred. Now, if you imagined... Me, me as a non-dentist then owning that practice and I suddenly have to pay an associate £100,000 in addition to the £100,000 overhead, so there's no profit in it. So so for me, as an associate-led practice, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. You then look at something like an a million-pound turnover practice, maybe fixed overheads of 300000 I've got associate fees, lab material of five hundred. Then there's a profit, regardless of whether I'm a dentist or not, of two hundred thousand, and and therefore we class that as an associate led. So it can be it can be run by somebody who isn't working in the practice. Obviously, the dentist go, can go in and work in there, and then reduce the associate costs and generate more profit. We give some more flexibility, and I think that's firstly key to to determining the right type of practice that somebody wants to purchase. Awesome. So that would be one of the most common pitfalls. What are the other things that we should look out for on top of that? Maybe if there was like a top three, because I feel that would be hugely beneficial for anybody who's teetering on the brink of making that decision. I think I think once once they've determined the type of practice that they want to look for, and and as I say that that to me is certainly key. The the second thing is really looking at projections for that for that individual. 
So what somebody might have an idea as to how that practice would work for them might be totally different to to a second person and a third person. So are they going into the practice and, and are going to replicate what the principal is doing? Are they actually going to do less um, and therefore need more associate costs? Or, or are they actually going to um, build in some specialism and suddenly um, the, the practice is going to be significantly higher gross fee uh, gross fees than, than it was previous? So every single person will actually have a different level of projections based on, on that, that practice. So what we typically like to see is somebody really looking at those those details. And it, it's it's also, I mean, something that we do with with clients. So it's not saying to somebody, right, you need to you need to worry about this. This this is this is what we do. This is bread and butter for us. But it's making people realize that it's really important and, and a practice that comes onto market just happens to be in the area that they're looking. First, they might not be typically right for them because they may, it might be somebody who is planning to have children in the next 12 months and it's a fully principal led and it doesn't work on if, they, if they're not working. It. So, so is that right? Then secondly, let's have a look at some projections, really determine how is that practice going to work for you? Not just now, but actually what's going to happen in five years time? What are you going to do with that practice going forward? And that again might then say, actually, this practice isn't suitable. I've got this beautiful practice. It's profitable. It's got two surgeries. Uh, there's, there's myself and an associate working in it. But I want to bring um, another three, four so. Uh, associates in i want to bring specialisms in but there's not the room in the building to do it and yes you can you can relocate but again it's just determining that that what your plan is and whether that that follows alongside total curiosity on my part okay how many associates do you find come to you with this very predetermined plan i where they say i want to practice that has these projections does this does that x y and z this very, like I say, predetermined idea of what they want to purchase versus the other type of associate, I suppose, or I imagine that you might get who comes along and says, hey, I've got this money. I'm thinking about buying a dental practice and I need a little bit of guidance. Would most people fall into the second category or would it be more the first category? So it's interesting. This is where I say people accidentally fall into it. Um, I would typically say somebody looks at a practice um it maybe registers they, they decide that practice ownership is for them they register with agents uh, they get details and uh, a practice generally look at look local um practice is probably one of the key um drivers for for people will see a practice and say okay i found this practice i want to buy it but actually has ha, haven't had that consideration. And it's only generally when we start going through what they're doing and what they're going to be purchasing the practice for, which is part of what we do when we put together finance projections um, for, for the bank. So it's really putting a, a, a fairly simple mini business plan together for the, for the banks. And it, it, it then transpires that actually sometimes the practice isn't suitable. And generally, I would say most people at that point have 
hopefully found that actually this practice isn't isn't going to be right for them. So it's it's generally early doors. Um, but what I would say is generally I'm seeing people have found the practice before they actually determine whether it's suitable for them. So a bit of of going the wrong way about it rather than determining, okay, I need to look at a practice. Uh, this is what I need from a practice. It's actually, I found this, does this suit my needs? Um, or, or going down the line and then, then we're actually asking the question, is this super, is it future-proofing for you, for you? Maybe it's making that decision more with our hearts than our heads, right? I think it's it's always been a hard market because the the demand has been so high for dental practices and certainly has. I mean, I, I've been in PFM since two thousand and four, so two thousand six. Um, really, change of um, change of the NHS contracts, um, also allowance to set up limited companies really drove um, a, a significant increase in the market and, and corporate activity. And the limited company was the the thing that brought in in the corporates. So I think there has been a little element of, of I found something that that is in my locality. Um, I, I must purchase. So I think that that is a factor for some people. But I mean, invariably, most practices can develop. So actually has the ability to to do what people want to do, want it to do it's just making sure that if it's a three-year five-year project that you can get there um or whether it's something I mean, i've had people that for example have a practice they already own a practice and then they say okay i found a a practice down the road i, I want to purchase it and it's a principle-led practice and it's been valued on that basis. So therefore, financially, that's how it needs to work um, to, to generate levels of profit. And then you you say, well, if you're working in the new practice, who's going to take over the other one? Because invariably, assuming you're generating 200,000 gross fees as the, the, the easy maths for um, you're going to lose 100,000 in profit from your first one or your second one because you can't be in two places at once. And some, sometimes we do have people that are looking at second practices and, and actually they're their own practices, they're the principal letter rather than associate. Real quick, guys, I've put together a special report for dentists entitled The Seven Costly and Potentially Disastrous Mistakes that dentists make whenever it comes to their finances. Most of the time, dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening until they have their eyes opened. And that is the purpose of this report. You can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to www.dentistinvest.com forward slash podcast report. Or alternatively, you can download it using the link in the description. This report details these seven most common issues. However, most importantly, it also shows you how to fix them. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. There we go. Question, NHS versus private. How many people come to you and say, I want an NHS practice ASAP? Does Does that still happen? Yeah, so I mean, back I mean, again, going back to 2006, demand for NHS obviously uh, went through the roof. Um, the, the 
in essence, the NHS contract uh, was prior, I mean, you too young, I think, um, but prior <laughs> to two, prior to 2006, we were on, we were on um, just a fee per item. So you saw patients, you put a charge in, and then and then you got paid. 2006 came along, and there was a, a, a fixed amount of funding for NHS dentistry. So what that's created is a, a barrier to entry for for new practices, for squat practices, which which we used to have. So suddenly, the only way in which you could really, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some, um, now and again, you do see some funding available, but generally, the only way in which you can purchase an NHS practice is is to buy one. And and so NHS was always generally the easier to purchase from a point of view of less risk um, post, post the new contract in 2006. I think age was irrelevant. So again, you, you 28 to 30 year old generally had more experience in NHS than private and was more comfortable with it. Um, however, interestingly, we are seeing a significant increase in the man, demand for for private post COVID. So, so the, the the demand for NHS and and the, obviously the extra work required within the NHS post-COVID has has had an impact on, on NHS practices. And I would say typically what might have been 90% NHS, 10% private demand is more like 60-40 now. So it's it's really, it, it's still probably more NHS than it is private. Um, but oh, it's, it's certainly getting Oh, right. Close. Okay. Yeah. In, again, we're talking individuals versus corporates. It, it's is a different kettle of fish, and, and corporate you, you you primarily would say seventy percent more looking for for private practices than than NHS. But actually, you wouldn't occupy it. NHS is still in in high demand. There we are. Because when I said that earlier, I thought you I was expecting you to say that that's not something that happens so much anymore. But still. It's still out there. It's still there's still demand for NHS practice, and and it, it a lot of it comes down to again looking at the financials to to some degree. And this is what we we always did with corporates is you ignored the what the income type was, whether it be NHS or private turnovers. The turnover, the profits, the profits. Yes, obviously you've got to work within within a a structure, and, and whether that be NHS or private, but obviously. People still like NHS. Um, you tend to find that people, if they are buying an NHS practice, still have the ability to convert that practice if if they want to further down the line. So, um, so NHS is still it still has good levels levels of demand. There we are, lovely stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose I am a little bit, but yeah, yeah. There we go. Interesting. Okay. So yeah, I, I think private, private, as I say, certainly, certainly has increased in, in interest, and it's certainly from what we're seeing because obviously we, we see the recruitment um, side when we, we're talking to our clients because obviously they, what we are finding is that associates are not wanting to do as much NHS. There's no doubt about that, and and our clients are struggling to find NHS associates more than private associates. So there's there's no doubt that that is applicable in, in today's market. 
There we go. Interesting stuff. I suppose where that surprise came from for me is because when one spends time on social media, we tend to get a disproportionate perspective of just how much private density there is versus NHS. And the NHS isn't glamorized as much. And that's not to say that it, you know, you can't do lots of good density in the NHS, but it certainly doesn't get as much airtime on social media. Yeah. I feel. I think you're right. I think that the marketing side has always been a lot higher on, on private as it needs to be. I mean, you used to have the old um, thought process. You, you set up an NHS squat and you had the floods of, of people um, at the dock. Um, so, I mean, again, you'll be too young, but uh, it's all 20 miles down the road from me, Scarborough. Um, there, there were there were paper articles of somebody opening an NHS practice and literally a queue a mile long um, <laughs> of people looking to register. So I think you're right that especially um, cosmetic um, elements of, of private dentistry has a lot more uh, marketing and, and needs a lot more social presence. I mean, the likes of Invisalign has gone through the roof um, post-COVID as well and and does all need good marketing lovely stuff interesting so anything else that you'd like to say to that associate who's just about to take that leap before we move on to the next step of the journey anything else of relevance i, th- I think one one of the big things that i remember when i started um at, at pfm was we, we used to look at making something cost neutral and and, and and I think this is, this is key because I think again that there is some level of romance about purchasing a practice and and suddenly um, believing that there, there's going to be a, a, an instant increase in in profitability. And the way we always used to look at it was if you're an associate earning let's say eighty to ninety thousand pound, and you could purchase a practice, you could finance it and and cover the tax. If you were still pulling the eighty to ninety thousand pound as a practice owner, actually it was fairly it was cost neutral to you. Yet you're building an asset, um, you're purchasing an asset. You've over the fifteen years of, of your loan repayments, you're actually repaying that, that loan. And and the way I see it is that that it, it's like a, a, a an ISA, it's like a pension. It's it's another way to invest your money. Yes, it might not be reaping you an extra hundred thousand pound a year, and and to be fair, some practices do. Um, but but even if it didn't, you're actually you're paying for an asset. It's about a bit like buying a house, isn't it? That you you, you pay your mortgage, and, and then once you've paid your mortgage off, you've got the house to to then sell. Yes, obviously you still need to live in it post retirement, but you don't with the practice. So a lot of people you use. The pen, the the sale price, and when they when they um, come to retirement, is a big part of their investment. Um, and I think that is something that people really need to consider. And it's not always the, the glamour of the significance boost in in profitability, and that can come over time. That can come over five years when you're building the practice. So I had an accountant on very recently, and I believe he also brokers practices as well. And he was saying that in he's only ever known of one instance where someone's purchased a practice and they've sold it on for less than they bought it for. 
Okay. Now that's not to say that it always works out like that. So mm -hmm. I just want everyone to hold their horses after hearing that. But of course, there's certainly a theme there, a very strong theme. And what you're saying is you borrow, let's, let's pull these numbers out of there. You borrow a million. Here's the interesting thing about inflation and how assets appreciate, right? You borrow a million, right? And yeah, you've got your interest on top of that. I get, right? But if the interest rate's extremely low, higher than inflation, right? Then actually there is, there is a degree of profitability in there because the difference between the inflation rate and the level of interest actually is an extra margin of profit for you because that currency, which you always getting devalued while generally most practices tend to tend to appreciate. So you have this tailwind effect in essence with me. And, and, and in reality, even if it stood still, you, you've actually got an asset that, that you've cleared the loan, a million pound, let's say, as you say, you, you purchase um, for a million pound with, with, a, with a loan, um, maybe some elements of cash, but actually you've still got that asset to sell. So that million pound, even if it stood still, would then generate the million pound of which you wouldn't if you were, if you were uh, remaining as an associate. But generally, yeah, I, I agree that in my in my nearly coming up to twenty years, um, I don't think I've I've seen. I, I would have to analyze it, but I, I can't I can't think of many instances where value would have gone down. There you go, top stuff. Let's progress the journey as promised. Let's put ourselves now in the shoes of the individual who's just bought a practice. So they've just come through that process. In fact, there was one other thing I wanted to ask. Let's just roll back from that for two seconds. Loan to value ratios, super important, right? Yeah. So let's let's say, so when in the housing market, let's say you want your buy to let, you have to have 25% of the value of the house as a deposit, right? Let's take that logic and apply it to dental practices. What is your, I don't even know if that's the right terminology, but what is a typical loan to value ratio? What is the capital that we have to put down versus the value of the business? So, so in reality, I mean, the answer is 100% finance is possible. Um, for, oh, wow, really? <laughs> however, typically 5 to 10% deposit is ideal. Now, there are some also then some banks that require 20% deposit, which opens you, you up to more options. Um, it, unlike residential mortgages, there isn't a a rate for your 100% and then your 95% loan to values then your 90 and then your 80% where residential you generally see that they that the more the more deposit you're putting down the less loan to value i.e. the less borrowing as a percentage gets you a better interest rate it doesn't work like that with with, with um practice purchase no it, it, it's very much on the deal um so so typically, you're probably talking in the region of two to three percent plus base um, for for a reasonable size practice, and it doesn't often change. If, you, if as a, it doesn't change at all, to be fair, if you've got zero deposit, five percent deposit, or twenty percent deposit, yes, you, you'll have a different option of banks, and therefore a numerous different um, options. But in reality, we went to one bank and said. This client's got 5% deposit or this client's got 15% deposit, the rate possibly going to be the same. So so it's useful to know um, that because I think a lot of people do 
similarize it with residential mortgages and, and I think, okay, I need to have this deposit so that I can get the better interest rate, which which isn't true. What's, what I would say with deposits, however, is that when we look at the borrowing, it's based on affordability. And, and the way in which affordability works, again, very different from residential mortgages, where we might be talking a full multiple on your on your on your earnings. And and uh, nice and easy, your earnings are 150,000, you can borrow four times multiple, so you can buy a 600,000 pound house. Um, the way in which dental practice purchase works, or, or any commercial loan, to be fair, is that they look at the affordability of the loan. So how that works is that they will look at the projected profit. So this is, again, why you need to understand the personalized position of, of that practice for, for you as, as an owner what your personal profit is going to be, less the finance costs, less the tax, and then unless your personal requirements. So if you have a drawing requirement of £5,000 a month and, and there's nothing you can do about it, it's car repayments and loan repayments, then that has to be built in. And then there has to be a surplus. And that surplus generally has to be around about 30% of the loan amount. So sounds complicated so if we put maths to it probably the easiest thing um 150 pound profit um i'm going to make the tax up so let's assume it's a limited company corporation tax of 20 percent just for the ease of maths um so that bring it down to 120 let's assume the finance costs were 40 that brings it down to 80 if you had forty thousand pound um of drawing requirements that leaves you with a surplus of 40 um i can't remember what did i say the loan payments were going to be um i think i said about forty thousand. so so that would fit because the forty thousand pound surplus is is at least a third of the forty thousand pound loan repayments if there was a surplus of only ten thousand then actually the banks would say there's not much affordability there because it's not hitting a percentage of the actual loan repayments because they need flexibility um, that they need to make sure that anybody can repay the loan subject to something happening they will also calculate it on a higher level of interest rate so the clients are double protected to some degree that the, the banks will look at higher level of interest rates and they will also look at there has to be a surplus of cash probably why that's sorry <laughs> no yeah I, I thought you were finished as well i was i was, no, I was going to say Possibly why that's also important, and this this again is key for people preparing, is significant loans can massively affect the affordability. Um, so people really need to consider if they are purchasing a practice in the next couple of years, really looking at the overheads. Um, and if somebody, if somebody in that example I gave, if somebody said, "Oh, actually, I need six thousand um, pound to cover my overheads." Actually, that that calculation probably wouldn't have worked. Gold dust. Thank you so much for that. That's a really, really, really nice breakdown of how that works. I actually didn't know that, and it's interesting that that's a counterintuitively, I believe, is the word that it doesn't actually make any difference in terms of the interest rate necessarily as to how much deposit that you put down, which is totally different to houses, of course. One thing I forgot to mention, actually, while you were asking about loan-to-values. Loan to um, so when when we look at somebody's 
um, position. If let's assume we said a ten percent deposit's ideal, equity is as good as cash. So if, for example, you had a five hundred thousand pound house with a two hundred thousand pound mortgage, you and I would, well, um, or your audience would probably go, okay, I've got three hundred thousand equity. Fortunately, it doesn't quite work like that. The 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 banks often uh, will write down that property value by thirty percent, so knock one fifty off, giving a value of three fifty as a written down value, less the two hundred thousand uh, pound mortgage. So there's one hundred fifty thousand pound deemed equity. Obviously, there's more equity in it than that, but that is as good as cash. So we can actually, if if, if the client wishes to give a, a second charge on the property. That's as good as giving the bank £150,000 in cash. So often where we look at these 100%, it's not necessarily because we're not giving anything towards to the bank and they're getting 100%. It's actually that we're using equity in other properties that, that allows us to actually not have to put cash in. But great from a client's point of view because they might want to use that cash that they've got to their legal fees, um, obviously potentially stamp duty of the person the property, but also renovations on the practice. They might want to put new systems in place um, that's going to cost them. With the obvious issue, potential issue being that your house is now your collateral, of course, just to spell that out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a second charge, obviously, people, I mean, it's, it's like a residential mortgage. The, the charge over a property is, is de-risking the the lender's position and, and that that be a first charge with your residential and a second charge with potentially with a commercial loan. Cool. Now let's progress on to that individual who's just bought the practice. They've just set up, it's their first Monday in the job. They've taken the reins. The reins are now firmly in their hands. They've taken over. What are the things that they need to know or be aware of so that they can be successful? I think take it easy. Um, it's probably what I would uh, maybe give an idea. I've, I've come across where we've sold practices in the past. Um, I I do remember one purchaser literally closed the practice down for a week, ripped everything out, put new chairs in, reception in. And don't get me wrong, it, it looked stunning. It did not go down well with patients and staff. I mean, this person had literally come in on Monday morning and and did everything. So I think take it easy. I don't think there's any requirements to do everything straight up front. Um, Bed yourself in. Make sure that everybody knows you, knows your plans, Um, especially staff. I mean, staff want to be comforted on the fact that everything will stay the same. Um, People like stability um but progression and i think anybody wanting to go in and and purchase a practice should see how things are are, are going because actually what an outside person might think is something wrong with the practice they might actually get in there and think actually i can see you now why it's done that way but even if it's not it's just taking the time. It's to it's it's creating a plan and making sure that you do actually do things after twelve months, after eighteen months, rather than jumping in and think you've got to change things from day one. 
Words of wisdom right there. That's awesome. Anything else you'd like to say to that avatar of that individual who's just bought the practice or is that the main thing? Um, I, I think getting the correct advice is really important. Um, I mean, interestingly, probably going on from and contradicting what I've just said, I think there is some level of somebody getting into a practice and th- and then realizing five years, 10 years down the line, they've actually not done anything with the practice. And all those plans that they had have just got forgotten about because they're, they're so involved in the day-to-day um, transaction of, of, of dentistry. And and so having a plan is is very good. And, and I think stick trying to stick to it. So again, I'm, I'm sort of, not contradicting myself because I, I think it's important to take the time to do it and, and to make sure that it's done at the right times, um, but not forgetting about it. So although we're not going in day one and actually changing everything, making sure that that plan is known to your accountant, is known to um, somebody who who you're going to be speaking to that, that that's going to help hold you accountable to some degree. Um so uh, probably that comes on to making sure that you you have good um, good advice going forward and making sure that people that are acting for you act in, in a way that uh, or, or provide that assistance for for the specialism that you have. And and I mean to be fair, part, I don't you probably know that part of PFM has um, we look after fourteen hundred. Um, clients on, on our dental accountancy side and now and and people like the specialism people like having somebody who understands uda's clawback um how how clawback should be implemented into into a set of accounts understanding regulations and associate pay it's it's really having the right people acting for you um going forward and and you're at your start of your journey the journey doesn't start the day you buy the practice it's actually the, the it's the start of the journey for your next 30 40 years love that again some words of wisdom martin there's been tons of those on this podcast today certainly some real gems in there thank you so much for your time if anybody wants to reach out to you off the back of what you said today where are they best to find you uh, probably our website, uh, pfmdental.co.uk, or um, our telephone number, 01904 uh, Website has all the information about us. Wonderful stuff. Thank you so much, Martin. We shall chat again super soon. Yeah, lovely speaking with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. Please search Dentists Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.